Greetings. This is Volts for November 1st, 2023. What? The sun isn't always shining? I am your host, David Roberts. If you have spent much time discussing clean energy on the internet, you've probably come across a disturbing piece of information. The sun, it seems, is not always shining. What's worse, the wind is not always blowing. It's crazy, I know. Unlike coal or natural gas or nuclear, dispatchable power plants that we can turn on or off at will when we need them, we do not control solar power and wind power. They come and go with the weather and the rotation of heavenly bodies. They are, to use the term of art, variable. Many people, bringing to bear varying levels of good faith, conclude from this fact that we shouldn't or can't shift to an electricity system that is based around wind and solar, at least not without occasionally shivering in the cold. Is that true? Do we know how to balance out the variability of wind and solar enough that we can fully decarbonize the grid with them? This is probably the number one question I hear about renewable energy, the number one reservation people have about it. So I decided it's time to tackle it head on. To help, I called on longtime friend of Volts, Princeton professor and energy modeler extraordinaire, Jesse Jenkins. We walked through the basic shape of the problem, the different timescales on which variability operates, and the solutions that we either have or anticipate having to deal with it. This one is long and occasionally gets a bit complex, but if you've ever wondered how we're going to build an energy system around wind and solar, this is the pod you've been waiting for. All right, I am here with Princeton professor and longtime friend of Volts, Jesse Jenkins. Jesse, welcome back to Volts. Thanks for coming back. Hey, Dave, it's always good to chat with you. Jesse, the reason we're doing this is that in the course of my research, I have come across some extremely disturbing information, which I felt like I needed to share with you and the world as soon as possible. Apparently, the sun is not always shining, and the wind is not always blowing. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. This changes everything. So we're going to have to talk through this. Oh, man. But seriously, I don't mean to make too much light of this. Uh, this is a subject about which people say lots of dumb things, but it is at its heart, I think, a perfectly valid question a perfectly valid area of concern. In fact, it is the central <laughs> area of concern about renewable energy. It is the central question to answer, which is the term that used to be used is intermittent. Renewable energy, wind and solar are intermittent. I think now the preferred term of art is variable, but I think probably the most accurate terminology for our purposes is non-dispatchable. It just means we don't control it. We don't turn it on and off. It comes and goes with the weather. 
Yeah, I prefer just weather dependent, right? I think it makes more intuitive sense to people. Like this, <laughs> yes. they go and see, like you said, it's solar and wind power, so it depends on the weather. That is not shocking, but also defining of what the resource is. Also dependent on, you know, uh, the turning of the planets and, you know, <laughs> the solar system. That's true. But anyway, people know what we mean. We, we don't control them. A lot of people, I think, uh, especially people who are coming, you know, who haven't given a lot of thought to the clean energy transition and are starting to grapple with it for the first time, I think, intuitively run up against this question early on in their thinking, which is, how do we deal with this? So I want to take those questions as good faith questions and talk through answers to them, to the extent we have answers, to the extent we do know how to deal with it, to the extent we do have the tools to deal with it, and the extent to which it remains, to some extent, unsolved. I want to start with a couple of really big picture questions before we hone in on the details. I think the first big one to ask is just what greenies, what climate people seem to be recommending, and what we seem to be doing, at least in the early stages, is shifting from an electricity system based on dispatchable power plants that we can turn on and off at will to a system that is fundamentally based on non-dispatchable, weather-dependent power plants that we can't turn on and off, which, as we're going to talk through, raises a whole host of issues and problems to solve. So I think the first thing to address is just why do that at all? <laughs> why take on that trouble? Why not just shift from dirty dispatchable energy to clean dispatchable energy like nuclear, hydro, and geothermal? Why take on the burden of dealing with variable energy at all? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and the reality is that now the reason is that wind and solar are really, really cheap. That wasn't the case a decade or two ago. And we sort of set off on this path supporting wind and solar and other clean energy technologies, um, you know, in different countries, not sort of knowing exactly where the cost declines would travel. And what we've seen is that basically in the West, at least, the cost of building new large scale nuclear power plants, which is our sort of most mature and previously scaled carbon-free generation technology, they've only gone up over the last, you know, couple decades. And we can talk more about why, or that's probably a better subject for another podcast. <laughs> um, just observe that that is a factual statement. Um, in other parts of the world, like China and, and South Korea and the UAE, where they're used to building large-scale, you know, civil works projects, they've been able to build nuclear plants at a reasonable expense. And, and it's a big part of the mix for those countries. But what we've seen is a tremendous decline in the cost of wind and solar power. And and what we, you know, chalk that up to is what's known as experience curves. I know there's a great uh, volts cast in the archives on uh, on this topic. Uh, you can go back to listeners. But the idea is that as we scale up uh, and deploy, you know, basically any technology, but in particular wind and solar um, at scale, we drive a whole set of processes, um, you know, kind of centered around innovation and competition that lower the cost of the technology. And that that's done through economies of scale, either in manufacturing or, or production of the technology itself. It's done through incremental innovations and sort of improvements that just get more efficient and better at producing and building these things over time. It's done by learning by doing sort of tacit knowledge, the sort of the, the skilled workforce develops and the, the engineers of the processes develop over time. 
And all of that uh, drives the cost of technologies down as we build more of them. That's true for ships and flat panel TVs and uh, you know aircraft and also for wind and solar. And particularly true for wind and solar because they are very small modular technologies that are repeatedly built um, yeah. both in manufacturing and in installation. Characteristics that make them well-suited to not just learning but rapid learning or rapid experience curves. The sum product of that is that wind and solar are the cheapest way to get electricity, period. Not just clean electricity, but electricity right. in most of the world today. Solar is the cheapest in most of the world, and if it's not, it's probably wind, with a few exceptions. And so that's the main reason to rely on it. It's just it's a cheap source of both clean and abundant uh, electricity. Right. So this would be something that the market would be pulling people to do anyway. It would These set of problems around variability would be problems that we would be trying to solve regardless because people want cheap energy and here's cheap energy. And so people are going to figure out how to maximize their use of the cheapest energy available. In large part, this is being driven by forces that are not directly related to climate change. Obviously, we need to do it as fast as possible because of climate change. But this is not as I think many people naively think when they first encounter it, something that we're taking on just because of climate change. It is because this prize is out there, this super, super cheap electricity. And if you can run your widget on super cheap electricity, you're going to want to figure out how you can do that. Yeah, I mean, it, that's true now. I think it's important to remember that we you know, supported wind and solar when they were expensive alternative energy technologies. That's what we called them back in the mid-2000s, right? And we supported them because for a variety of reasons, right? Because of climate change, yes, but actually originally because of energy security concerns that were sparked by the Arab oil embargoes in the 1970s and 80s. And you know that's what drove the early era of solar and wind development in the US and uh, Denmark and Japan and other countries that wanted to get off of imported fossil energy. We still burned a lot of oil in power generation at that time. And so finding alternative sources of electricity was important for energy security. That has come back to the fore of our attention, of course, with the invasion of Ukraine and Russia's unprovoked uh, invasion there, which sparked Europe to really dramatically reorient on a rapid pace away from imports of fossil fuels, uh, gas, coal, and oil from from Russia, which they were very dependent on. And it shot the cost of natural gas and gasoline You know, here in the US, where we, yes, produce more fossil fuels than we consume. So we're sort of physically energy secure, but we're still connected to these global energy markets. And so when a dictator on the other side of the world decides to invade his neighbor for no reason, that drives up the cost of gas at the pump and the cost of natural gas, you know, for our heating here in the US, like overnight. So there's, you know, a bunch of important reasons to pursue these fuels. They also, of course, have no air pollution, right? Air pollution, <laughs> yes. Let's throw air pollution in there because the science on air pollution, as as you and I know, is just gets worse and worse and worse. Like the evident damage of it gets worse and worse. Yeah. And not just mortalities, but also, you know, it makes us dumber. Yes. Like there's a lot of clear <laughs> indication that like particulate pollution actually, it affects our cognition. It, it affects our hearts. It affects our lungs. It, you know, it, it impedes uh, development of young children. I mean, it's just nasty stuff. And so if we can produce energy that's made from a domestic resource, like the abundant wind and solar that, you know, we have across the United States and other countries, that we can do so affordably, and that we can do so without any air pollution, those are all really good reasons to rely on wind and solar and to want to tackle the associated challenge of dealing with their variability and weather dependence. One other general level question 
this is something else I think people kind of come to intuitively, and there are not great straightforward answers out there, which is, and, and this is a variant of the first question, but I think importantly different. A lot of people want to say there are times when the sun will not be shining and the wind will not be blowing, i.e. there will be times when renewable energy output is at zero and demand will still be there. So you'll have to have backup resources capable of satisfying all that demand. But if you have to have 100% backup, why not just make the backup the main thing? <laughs> Again, why go to the trouble? You know what I mean? This idea that because they are variable, they require basically 100% redundancy with non-variable resources strikes a lot of people as sort of crazy. Yep. Like, why don't we just build the non-variable resources and skip the first step? So what do you say to the 100% backup hangup? Yeah, so the reality is you don't need 100% backup. You do need a sufficient amount of what I call firm capacity available. It's energy you know, capacity that you can use whenever you need it for as long as you need it which makes it a really important complement to weather-dependent resources like wind and solar, as well as to, we'll get to their role later, but to energy-limited or time-limited resources like batteries or demand flexibility, which are key parts of the puzzle as well. And so, you know, you need a certain amount of firm capacity. It's a pretty significant amount. But the reality is um, it's not 100% backup. You don't need one for one because there actually are really no times when there is no wind or solar across a large area, unless you're talking about maybe an island mm. grid that really has no geographic diversity. But yes, there's nighttime and there's winter, but generally there's some wind somewhere right, at all times. And so um, you don't need 100% backup. So that's the first thing. And the second is that if, you know, for again, for all the reasons I just went through, we want to rely as much as we can, again, not all the time, but as much as we can on wind and solar because the fuel is free. The cost of installing them is incredibly cheap. And when you have wind and solar, you displace other dirtier fuel consuming resources um, like natural gas or coal. And that saves money and it saves lives and it proves energy security. So all of that, you know, is the sort of main value add of wind and solar. I, I call them fuel saving variable renewables, because when you've got them, you don't need to consume other fuels. And it turns out that if that's the kind of grid you're building, then there are pretty cheap sources of standby capacity that don't cost very much upfront and are perfectly fine to pair with also very cheap wind and solar to play that backup role. I mean, the one example is combustion turbines. <laughs> we should say that it's also unlikely that a trough in renewable supply is going to overlap with a peak in energy demand. Those peaks in energy demand tend to be during the daytime. That's true today, although I would worry more about that in the future as we electrify heating, when the demand is likely to peak in the winter overnight. Um, yeah. And so it may be more likely that we do line up one of those periods, what the Germans call Dunkelflaute or dark doldrums. We'll definitely when, get to uh, that. Yeah, you have no, uh, no solar output or very little solar output, even during the daytime because it's winter or it's very cloudy. And then you have a prolonged period of a big high, blocking high that sits across a wide region, a front, a weather front that, that limits the wind output. That can occur both in the winter and the summer. And so it is a challenge and it's something we have to plan our, our renewables-based you know, grids to be resilient to. But again, that's why we don't depend entirely on wind and solar. We need a portfolio or a team. You know, the way I describe it is, you know, sort of, uh, there's a couple of metaphors. One is we need a balanced diet, right, in your day-to-day in your -day life. And the fact that 
you know, starches or, you know, uh, wheat is cheap, right? Is a cheap way to get calories means that, you know, the bulk of your food pyramid or whatever is going to be from those sort of cheap sources of calorie, rice, you know, starch, all the sort of staple crops. But of course, you also can't subsist entirely on those staple crops. You need a balanced diet of different things playing different roles and, and combining with each other in a way that gives you a balanced diet. So the same thing's going on in the grid. We have imperfect substitutes here for each other. They all produce electricity, just like all foods produce calories, but they have other characteristics as well. And just like starches and, and staple crops are the staple of our diet, but not the exclusive uh, makeup of our diet, wind and solar can be the staple of our energy diet as well, but have to be complemented by other things. And so we just right. need to be clear about that. No one's saying only use wind and solar power all the time for everything. We're saying, you know, you need, uh, these are cheap, clean, energy secure ways to produce electricity that are scalable across most of the world. And so they're going to play a really central role, a star role in our overall energy mix. People might be aware there is some controversy about, you know, there are people out there who want 100% renewable systems versus, you know, people who want some nuclear or natural gas with CCS involved. Mm -hmm. But the argument there is not whether you need balancing resources to balance renewables, right? Even the people who want 100% renewables acknowledge you need storage and hydro and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They acknowledge you need resources to balance variable renewables. It's just an argument over which resources, right? And, and, yep. and, and, we'll, and we'll get to that later. That's right. And I should just say before we dive into the, you know, solving this, the renewables challenges, it is worth noting that it's a big, diverse world out there. And we have, you know, countries that are situated in vastly different ways in terms of their geography, their population density, their available renewable resource potential. And so there are going to be parts of the world that can't rely on wind and solar as the dominant source of their energy mix. Places like North Korea or Japan or the UK. I was just right? in uh, I Iceland, which <laughs> yeah. gets 100% carbon-free electricity with zero <laughs> wind and yeah, solar. All from it's, geothermal. A, it's all it's hydro and, and geothermal. Yep. So we should acknowledge that up front. And you know, I'm not saying like this is the solution for the world. It, it just is for a big chunk of the world. And even in places like Japan or the UK, which are pretty uh, dense and limited land area, they can rely on renewables for a good chunk of their energy needs. And they're trying to do so because of the you know, energy security, affordability, um, and climate clean air benefits that they offer. So it's a piece of the mix, whether it's the dominant majority or not, um, it, you know, depends on the local circumstances. Some parts of the world are probably going to need nuclear power or geothermal or other more energy dense resources to complement or, you know, or even fully supplant wind and solar because of local resource constraints. Um, but that is going to probably be the exception, not the rule. Okay. So I want to hone in a little bit on the time scales here. I'm going to run through and we'll sort of proceed in the discussion from the first of these to the last. So I'm going to run through real quickly the different time scales of variability because <laughs> renewables are variable, but they're variable on several different time scales, which pose distinct problems. So let me just run through this real quick. So at the shortest level, you have variable in terms of seconds or minutes. So you can think of something like clouds drifting in front of the sun that causes a slight dip. There are those constant slight dips in the wind and the sun. And so you need uh, something that is balancing in terms of near instantaneous short-term balancing. Then second, you have what you call minutes to hours. So you think of like 
ramping. So for instance, the sun goes down at the end of the day. You go from 100% solar resource to 0% solar resource relatively quickly over the course of an hour or two. That's a different kind of intermittency. And then you go up to hours and days. Here you get to what are called diurnal cycles overnight, for instance, you know, uh, the sun goes down at night <laughs> and occasionally the sun and, and the wind will, you know, flag for a couple of days and then come back. So there's the hours to days cycle. Then the, you get up to weeks. You can have weeks of unusually high demand or unusually low renewables. And then beyond that, you have what's called seasonal variability. So there can be entire seasons or years where solar insulation is unusually low or wind is unusually low. So at each of those timescales, you have a distinct problem to be solved in the electricity grid. And we have, I think it's fair to, I mean, tell me whether you think this is fair or too crude. I think that is roughly also the order of easiest to solve to most difficult, basically. <laughs> but we can get into that. But let's start at the normal second-to-second, -second, cycle to cycle variability of wind and sun. What's our solution there? Well, here's where it's important to remind folks that the electricity system is a pretty unique supply chain in that supply and demand have to be balanced every millisecond yeah. instantaneously, basically, in this market. So if you're consuming electricity somewhere out there, someone has to be producing it at the exact moment that you're consuming it. That's true for every location across the entire grid all the time, which is different than, say, like Amazon supply chain, where like, you know, there's a package in a warehouse somewhere. It may or may not go out to get to you when you ask for it. It'll take, you know, anywhere from a day to five days, right, to get to you. It's the ultimate just-in-time uh, yeah. uh, delivery. <laughs> it's like Amazon Prime on steroids. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it has to be balanced. You know, everywhere, supply has to equal the demand in real time. And there's actually really, really significant physical implications if that doesn't happen, because you have a whole bunch of generators and induction motors that are actually synchronized with the alternating current frequency of the grid. That means that in the US, every 60th of a second, the grid's frequency is reversing back and forth. And the motors that are spinning to generate that electricity and the motors that are induced to spin by that electricity to do useful things like you know run industrial processes and and other things are all synchronized with that frequency. So they're spinning at 60 hertz as well. What a wild thing it is that it works. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's it. I always start my I start my classes at. Yeah. At like this. Oh, just to remind ourselves that this is like the craziest continent scale Rube Goldberg machine that we've built with incredible physical tolerances. And it just works. Yeah. So that's important to remind ourselves because it's not like there isn't variability in that system already. Right. Demand goes up and down. You can flip on a light switch or plug in your EV or flip on a kettle, electric kettle, whenever you want. Right. You don't have to ask the grid in advance. You just do it. And that's true across millions of consumers all over the continent. And power plants, transmission lines, they fail sometimes. Substations go down. Transmission lines fail. Generators break. And so not only do you have you know small changes in demand from your light switch, but you can have big changes in that supply and demand balance 
that happen pretty much instantaneously. And this is a good distinction to mark here, which is the distinction between predictable variability and unpredictable variability, which are very different. Exactly. So there's a certain amount of this, you know, variability and uncertainty that already happens in the grid. There's sort of demand changes that are both predicted and also errors in those predictions. So we have demand forecast errors every day. They're off by several percent, right, from what we thought the demand was going to be. And we have um, what grid operators call contingencies, the sort of the unplanned forced uh, failures of certain grid equipment that we have to be ready for at all times. Because if you lose a thousand megawatt, you know, substation, uh, you know, with a big factory on it, like an aluminum smelter, or you lose a generator, a big coal plant or gas plant complex or a nuclear power station, instantaneously, you have to rebalance that. Um, Because if supply and demand get out of balance, the inertia of the grid physically responds. So it's a little bit like uh, if you remember playing on a a merry-go-round at a playground where, you know, you could be sort of have a couple friends on it and you're spinning it around and then somebody jumps off and all of a sudden the rotational inertia is the same, but the weight is different and the, you know, merry-go-round speeds up, you know, really fast, right? Because there's less mass to move around. Or somebody jumps on and it slows down, right? And that's the same thing that's happening on the grid in aggregate is if you add load is what the electricity system calls demand because it acts like a physical load on the force that the generators have to induce to create the electricity, it slows those generators down just a little bit and they have to work a little bit harder in, or you have to add more supply. One of your friends has to come run up and help you push the, the merry-go-round as more people get on. And the same thing, the opposite happens if um, supply exceeds demand, it gets easier to push just like uh, when somebody jumps off the merry-go-round. And so the generators all speed up and so do all the motors that are connected to the grid. And what's challenging here, again, is that the tolerances there are incredibly narrow. So just a 1% deviation in that speed of the grid is enough to trigger devices to disconnect to avoid avoid damaging themselves because they spin up, you know, if you have a generator that's designed to go a certain speed and it starts to go faster than that, it can start to throw turbine blades out at very high velocities (laughs) and self-destruct a whole building, right? A whole very expensive generator that you don't want to blow up. And same thing with industrial equipment, right? If they start moving too fast or even too slow, they can cause damage. So we have these, you know, protection devices that will trip offline devices as the frequency gets out of this very narrow range. And that can also cause a cascading failure because if you lose one generator because the frequency is too high or too low, then you'll start to lose the next generator and then the frequency will drop even more and then you'll lose the next generator and it'll go even uh, lower. And so you get these cascading failures. And, And the grid operator's job, really the number one job is to avoid that outcome at all costs, right? To make sure that this crazy Rube Goldberg machine is resilient to those kinds of of scary, unplanned uh, contingencies. So we always have enough backup generation, enough flexibility, uh, what we call operating reserves or contingency reserves or spinning reserves, lots of different names for these products, of basically backup generators that are there able to increase their output if they're already producing or decrease it very rapidly or that are offline but can start up quickly to um, step in to the gap when something uh, occurs. And that's how we keep this crazy system running right now. So there's sort of a physical response of inertia as you turn on or off you know, devices. And then we have all of these sort of cascading markets of different paces of response time that we have backup capacity waiting for, you know, from seconds to minutes to half hour, hour long kind of startup times. 
And that system of redundancies is how we keep the grid running today. And it will be the same set of solutions and some new ones that'll come in to help augment what we do today that'll help us deal with the variability that we now are adding from wind and solar to a system that is already variable and has dealt with variabilities since its very beginning. Right. It's fair to say, though, that, that we'll have a lot more. Yes, we will have more. The second-to-second -second variability, for instance, is going to be a lot yeah. more from a wind and solar-based uh, system. Yeah, it, it adds a new source of forecast error, right? Because your wind and solar is now also variable with the weather, and we get better at forecasting that the closer to real time we get. But there is still errors in those forecasts. And certain power plants, coal plants, nuclear plants, others are, are slow to react to changes. And so we actually commit them to operate a day ahead of time. Usually we give a day ahead schedule for the next 24 hours. And that predicts the sort of average demand over the course of each hour that we're trying to meet. And so generators get turned on and, and are ready to meet that demand based on the forecast. And if the forecast is wrong a day ahead, then we need to deploy those flexibility resources of, at different timescales to, to cover the, the surpluses or deficits um, that we have in the system. And again, that's already how it works. We're just going to do more of that. And in some ways, we're going to be reducing the conventional sources of that flexibility because right now we get most of that flexibility from hydro and fossil power plants that are committed and operating on the grid, but are held back from operating at their maximum or minimum levels to have some flexibility to ramp up or down quickly. So the less of that we have, because we're shutting down those plants to make room for wind and solar when they're producing, the more alternatives we need. Or we end up actually having to curtail wind and solar output in order to keep a minimum amount of those fossil generators online to maintain reliability. So that's the first option is you just curtail the renewables. But of course, that's wasting free energy. And so mm -hmm. we'd like to have other ways to take advantage of the wind and solar and still manage that short-term variability. And that's where things like batteries and synchronous condensers and capacitor banks and other devices that we can add to the grid to augment their flexibility on those short timescales come in. Is it safe to say that with those options, especially batteries, like do you worry as we get closer to net zero, closer to a 100% carbon-free system, do you worry about this second-to-second -second variability? Or do you think basically with batteries, we basically have that problem solved and can handle that? It's very low on my <laughs> worry list. And, and that's not because it's not something that somebody has to worry about. It's just that I think there are very good control engineers and power engineers and grid operators out there solving these problems already. And we've known about these problems for decades. And so there are a lot of solutions already out there. And so pretty much everything is figured out in this space, I would say, with the exception perhaps of the physical inertia, that really immediate microsecond, microsecond response that we get from the physical spinning mass of all of these interconnected uh, generators. Beyond that, the next line of defense is, is we call frequency regulation or frequency reserves. Those are the ones that sort of move up and down on a second by second time scale to track a control signal that, you know, they say, go up a little bit, go down a little bit, you know, to, to sort of uh, uh, keep things balanced out. And a few years back, maybe about a decade now, um, some of the grid operators in the U.S. opened those markets up to batteries and particularly lithium ion batteries. Grid services. Yep. And it turns out that... Lithium-ion batteries are incredibly good at this job because you don't need very much 
battery capacity, right? You don't need a bunch of energy in the tank right. to be able to do this because it's generally about neutral, right? You're sort of going up and down and up and down and up and down around a, a middle point. And so you don't, you, you know, you can maybe only have 15 or 30 minutes of full, you know, power discharge capability. And that's still enough to provide frequency regulation because you're really only charging, discharging on few second, you know, to minute long timescales. And they're incredibly fast. So, you know, the power electronics responds really quickly to the control signal and it can flip from full on to full charge very quickly, much faster than a physical generator could do, even a, even a hydro generator, which traditionally were the fastest uh, response. And so when PJM and other grid operators opened up these markets in around maybe 2009, I think, to storage, we saw the first commercial scale deployment of grid connected batteries, and they basically ate the entire market because they're yeah. just the best way to do this. Yeah, there's not much left of that market in places no. where, it, where it opens up. It's pretty easy to cover those needs. Yeah, you only need probably a few thousand megawatts of frequency regulation nationally. So that's like, you know, mm -hmm. a few nuclear power plants worth of capacity nationally. And, you know, we, we have built that and a few hundred megawatts usually per grid region. And so like the batteries just came in and you built a few grid batteries and they have taken on that role very capably. And the market is sort of full. Is that what they call synthetic inertia? No. So that's the next challenge. So yeah, this is frequency regulation, which is on the sort of second by second timescale. That initial response of the physical inertia is like milliseconds. That's just like happens instantaneously. Because again, all of the devices are, are interconnected and physically synchronized. And so when the demand goes up a little bit, all the generators kind of lean into it a little bit and produce a little bit more uh, and vice versa when, they, when the demand drops. And so that is where we currently depend on, on the physical inertia of generators who are, who are connected to the grid and producing power. And we get that for free. It's not something we pay those generators for. It's something that they just physically have provided for free, and it's been ample and well in excess of the amount that we generally need, with rare exceptions like islands or microgrids where it's much more challenging to keep uh, enough inertia. And so we haven't been paying generators for that. It's just sort of a, a bonus that we get from having these uh, synchronized generators online. And grid-connected inverter-based resources, which includes wind, solar, and batteries, and fuel cells, and any other kind of direct current device like that, electrochemical device, they're not synchronized spinning masses of copper and steel like generators are, and so they don't provide that physical inertia. And so synthetic inertia is basically a computerized control strategy to make those inverter-based resources act like a physical inertia device would and to sort of automatically compensate based on local measured characteristics. Right? This is too fast to send a control signal out, even you know from a centralized dispatch. It has to be locally metering what's going on and, and directly responding to the local conditions without knowing what's going on in the rest of the grid. And so you are basically designing control strategies to use the power electronics in an inverter to change the reactive power production or consumption of the battery or the, the solar panel or the wind farm, which can, if you do it right and tune it well, can simulate and replace the physical uh, inertia that you get from the system. And, and this is still, I mean, this is something that, again, people have been working on for decades in the lab. We've done lots of you know, experiments. It's one of those ones that you know, grid operators are very reluctant to deploy at scale and rely on in a, in a you know, field experiment, because if it goes wrong, 
you know, the grid goes down potentially. And so it's one of those ones where like, it probably would work if we were willing to just like jump off the cliff and try it. But, you know, we're an incredibly, uh, for obvious reasons, this is an incredibly conservative industry. And so there's been, you know, various, you know, small scale deployments to try to see how it works, but nowhere in the world that I'm aware of is relying substantially on synthetic inertia today. Again, with the exception maybe of small microgrids. I should say that there's a dumber, simpler, uh, and slightly more costly solution that we can fall back on, even if that doesn't work, which are called synchronized condensers, which is basically a generator without the turbine, right. <laughs> without the spinning you know, j- uh, prime mover that are just spinning hunks of, of copper and <laughs> yeah. wires and magnets that are on the grid and are synchronized. They consume a little bit of electricity to spin around and stay synchronized. So they do use up some variable, you know, some of the energy uh, production um, and they do cost money because they're a big, you know, they're basically half of a generator, the, the magnet part without the turbine. But these have been around for a long time and they're used in certain locations to buffer short term variability from, say, starting up a steel mill, a, a electrical steel mill or aluminum smelter. That is this big new demand that comes on very quickly. They've been used in that context and, and to support the voltage at certain little pockets in the grid where it's been hard to do so. And I recently read a, a, a thesis, a, a dissertation from University of Melbourne, PhD student, who modeled this as an option, you know, without any synthetic inertia in the grid, but a minimum physical inertia requirement, and found that it would add to a fully decarbonized system about 1% or 2% to the cost of that system if we only relied on synchronized condensers to do the job. So again, like these are mature technologies we know how to build. At worst, they add a couple percent to the system. At best, they're free because all of these inverter-connected devices that we're adding can perform the same role as physical inertia with via synthetic controls. And again, that's more perspective at this point, but I think it's an imminently solvable challenge. Okay, so this is the super short-term variability. Let's call it a solved problem, at least uh, um, as these things go. So let's move up a little bit. Then you get big ramps. Ramps in the morning when the sun comes up and goes down. Occasionally, wind will will die down quickly. What do you do about these sort of minutes to hours, midday, you know, um, variability? So I'll say what we do now and then what we could do, which would be better. Um, right now, again, we rely on fast acting thermal or fossil power plants to play that role. And mostly so natural gas, right? I mean, mostly natural gas, um, sometimes diesel, uh, you know, internal combustion engine, reciprocating engine generators. You know, so what we do is we commit a bunch of generators that are ready to act when the sun is about to set, and they are operating at their minimum stable output level, which is not zero. So generally, they don't get to just sort of sit there at right. and park at zero. They have to be on at you know somewhere between forty and sixty percent of their output usually, or thirty and sixty percent of their maximum output is as low as they can go. So during the middle of the day, when the solar you know is at its maximum. Many of these are shut off, but then they start to get recommitted in the afternoon hours right before this evening ramp and run at, you know, sort of crouch there at their minimum output level and then ramp up really quickly as the sun sets to compensate. And so gas turbines are really good at this. They're really fast uh, to respond. I mean, they're they're what run jet engines, right? I mean, jet engines are, are basically gas turbines that we use. We, derived our gas turbine generators from from jet engines. So, you know, the fastest ones are as fast as a jet fighter. They're literally the same engine. We have one here at MIT, I mean, at, uh, at Princeton, 
in our um, central plant is an aeroderivative gas turbine. It's the same. It's used in like a F-16, you know, fighter. So they're really fast to respond because um, they can handle a dogfight. <laughs> um, but then you also have bigger, what are known as frame combustion turbines uh, and combined cycle power plants that usually also use these frame turbines connected to a second steam generator. So they use the hot gas from the uh, combustion turbine as the steam generation source for a steam turbine as well. That's combined cycle. That's what. That's the, why we call them combined cycle, because they combine a Brayton and a uh, Rankin cycle, a gas and steam turbine. So we don't want to do this in a, we can't do that <laughs> in a fully decarbonized grid. I mean, you can, I think, keep some fossil plants on line and use them very, very rarely. But I don't think you could do that on a day-to-day yeah, basis exactly. in a decarbonized system. Yeah. I mean, theoretically, you could do this with a hydrogen turbine or something like that, but you would probably consume way more hydrogen than you want because hydrogen is a very expensive fuel yeah. to produce. And so, yeah, you you don't want to keep doing this on a day-to-day basis. But I, I want to add that, again, like we do this now, and this is how we keep the grid running, even when California gets nearly 100% of its electricity during the middle of the day from solar and wind. The downside is that because you have to have those generators running at their minimum level before they can ramp up, because they, they take, it takes, you know, between 30 minutes and several hours to turn on once you call on them. Hmm. And so, you know, like a, a combined cycle power plant takes the longest of the gas generators, the air derivative turbines can maybe turn on in 30 minutes, but generally they have to be sort of on and parked and ready for that ramp. And you need some of them just sitting there even, you know, for the unforecasted variability, right? The, you know, we know that this, the afternoon ramp is happening, but... They're displacing wind and solar while they're sitting there exactly. doing that. And, and so that limits the ability of wind and solar to displace their fuel consumption because they're on, not because they're the cheapest generator to meet demand at that hour, but because we know we need their flexibility for the ramping periods or the contingencies that we're waiting for. So it would be great if we had a really fast way to flexibly produce or consume energy to, um, you know, match the variability of wind and solar. And fortunately, there are lots of good ways to do that too. Batteries being the first uh, and, you know, most significant new source of that kind of uh, hourly uh, flexibility. But also the demand side can be called upon much more as well. We should note that batteries in this capacity are way faster than the turbines. Yeah. Once again, they, they can do that frequency regulation on a second-by-second second basis, yeah. so they surely can deal with the sunset. And um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they don't need to be committed. They can sit there. On, they're on the grid all the time. Right. They can go from, from fully discharging to fully charging or back. You know, So they actually have twice the ramping capability, right? Because if you have 100 megawatts of battery, it can switch from being a 100 megawatt consumer to 100 megawatt producer, giving you 200 megawatts of ramping in that battery. And they do it in a second, right, um, from one to the other. And so they're really good at this. And we're already seeing them deployed at gigawatt scale in a lot of markets in the world, particularly those with high solar penetrations, because this daily cycle is so predictable. You get really cheap power during the middle of the day and really expensive power in the evening ramp. And so they can make money arbitraging that spread, um, you know, buy low and sell high. Yes. And you also mentioned demand shifting, which yep. is just trying to move large sources of load under that curve when solar is producing all this energy and, and away from the times of sharp ramps. 
Exactly. You mentioned at the beginning that we're shifting from a system of dispatchable generation to one of you know variable or non-dispatchable generation. Well, we're also hopefully shifting from a system of non-dispatchable demand, right? You know, constant demand that doesn't know what the price of electricity is and just keeps consuming no matter what, to dispatchable or flexible demand because power electronics are cheap, computing power is cheap, controls technologies are very sophisticated. And it would not be very hard to wire up a whole bunch of heating, you know, HVAC controls and uh, hot water uh, heaters and EV chargers to be much more flexible on both, you know, minutes to hours to even daily timescales. There's a lot of flexibility in an EV, right? I mean, I have a 300 mile range uh, EV. That's enough for five to seven days of driving in my typical driving pattern. So not only can I shift, you know, which hours during the night or daytime, if it's plugged in at home during the day that I consume energy, but I can even choose which days to consume, right? I can shift from Monday to Wednesday or, you know, Wednesday to Saturday. Right. And that's, you know, probably the most flexible of these loads, but think about a hot water heater. That's just a big thermal battery, right? It's a big yep. insulated tank of water. And when you charge it and heat it up or, you know, uh, or, or not, it's, you know, it's quite flexible. You can do it right as you're drawing down the hot water or you can preheat it and get it above the desired temperature. And, and, you know, and there are, you know, even more sophisticated ways to do that. Parts of the world that traditionally relied heavily on hydro or nuclear power, where you had a, the problem of too much generation overnight, what those parts of the world did way back in the 50s through to today is um, they have ceramic brick heaters that heat up a big ceramic brick when the power is cheap and then let that brick re-radiate heat into your house during the daytime, right? When, thermal when storage. You, yeah, it's yes, cheap. We it's love, simple. We love thermal storage. And this, again, this is not sci-fi. This is like they do it in Quebec and the UK and they've done it since the 60s. Yeah. So um, we could be building big thermal batteries in everyone's home whenever we put in a new HVAC system, right? It could just be part of the HVAC design is that you have a big hot water tank or a big, a big hot brick, brick tank. <laughs> yep. We also get to what I think is one of the most fascinating questions, and I think um, unexplored as yet questions in this whole area, which is when you are talking about big industrial loads, how much of that load is shiftable? How much of big industrial load could be shifted? I don't think there's been a ton of exploration of that to date, and I think we're going to be finding out soon what the answer to that question is. Yeah. And actually I have a paper that we just resubmitted this week after revisions on this. I can, we can provide a link to the working paper in the show notes on what we call demand sinks. So these are consumers that are extremely flexible in when they decide to consume and will basically match their consumption to the availability of low cost power. And since wind and solar are the cheapest way to make low cost power, that will mean they can sync up their output to wind and solar. And so we actually offer four different categories of demand in that paper to try to help kind of talk through the options here. So if we're thinking about the demand side, there's, you know, firm demand. That's the normal stuff that we're used to having where it wants to have, you know, three or four nines of reliability, we usually say, which is like 99.99 <laughs> or 99.999% reliability, right? basically all the time. And that's, you know, uh, most of our current demands, residential commercial lighting and cooking and refrigeration, industrial, most industrial loads, you know, hospitals and other critical loads and most heating demand today. And we, you know, that's demand we expect to serve. And if you don't, it's a big problem, right? That's when you're having rolling blackouts. 
Then we have interruptible demand or curtailable demands. This is the sort of category of demand response that we have. So these aren't necessarily shifting their production. They're just stopping consumption when the price of electricity is really high or when they're being paid a lot of money to do so. Mm -hmm. And that's where things like aluminum smelters or... Um, you know, industrial demand response contracts that they have with a whole bunch of like industrial refrigeration warehouses or consumers with backup generators who can turn on and get off the grid when the price of power is higher than the cost of running their generator. That's a lot of the demand response we have today. That's also where uh, hydrogen boilers or other things could potentially, you know, play a role. So there's, a, a, you know, some new ones coming in that category too. Those ones, you know, you don't want to call on those very often, but they can help you avoid building a bunch of generation that just sits there for that like you know half a percent of the hours of the year when you really need some backup because they can consume uh, less during those periods for a few hours at a time. Then you have what we call shiftable demands. These are the ones we we're just talking about where you can move around when you consume within a kind of hourly or even daily time scale. Flexible EVs, heating demand, uh, data centers potentially can do this, something Google has explored, moving around in both space and time where they do the compute loads. Yeah, Google is doing a ton of work trying to figure out how much of their compute load is shiftable. Yep. Yeah, one of my uh, former MIT classmates who I happened to see last weekend at a wedding uh, is, was working on this with Google. Um, it's, yeah, fun, fun stuff to optimize, right? Great control problem to play with. And then, you know, things like agricultural pumping is another one that's often, you know, done already, like California irrigation districts will shift when they pump uh, their um, water into the canals and the reservoirs and things like that. Um, so that's a, another tried and true demand. And, and so those demands, they, they meet their needs, right? That's just a question of when they, they do it. So it's different than curtailable right, right. or interruptible demands. And then this last category of demand sinks are the really price sensitive consumers who really can choose when to consume. And, and this is where it's an interesting question, which categories will emerge here. What we found in our paper is that in order to do this, you kind of need a weird combination of things. You need something that's highly automated because you can't have a lot of labor sitting around idle when you stop consuming, right? Because that's usually too much of a cost. It needs to be very energy intensive, you know, meaning a big chunk, if not the most of your cost of production is the cost of energy inputs. And it needs to produce something of value that isn't so valuable that you never want to turn off. This is the current <laughs> problem with crypto mining with Bitcoin. Is that the Bitcoin prices are so high or they have been? I don't know. They're all over the place now. So maybe they're lower now that, um, you know, you want to consume, even if the electricity is several hundred dollars per megawatt hour, hundred dollars per megawatt hour, it means you basically consume 98, 99% of the time anyway. So that makes you more like an interruptible demand, not a flexible consumer. But if the price of the product is lower or your, you know, your willingness to pay is only 10 or 20 or $30 a megawatt hour, then you want to concentrate to when the load is or the power is cheap. And then finally, it has to be not very capital intensive because if you're going to idle your production and shift your consumption around to low price hours, you're going to have a low utilization rate for that capital, all that equipment. And so it can't be too expensive or you'll need to run it all the time. And that's where kind of direct air capture fails the test right now because mm. you know it meets the other requirements highly automated totally energy intensive yep but it's too capital intensive to run at anything less than maybe 95% of the time 
so there are a few here that I think may work. Um, and the one is, I think we share is one of our favorite uh, technologies out there, which is resistance heating with thermal storage. Yes. Uh, right. So Rondo or Antora, who you've interviewed on here, I'm on the advisory board of, of Rondo Energy, I should disclose, and I'm a big fan of what they're up to. But here you basically take in renewable electricity whenever it's available and you use a big thermal battery like the hot water tank or the ceramic bricks that we we're talking about in the home to decouple. Box of rocks. Yeah, or a box of rocks in the, or, or even just rocks in the ground covered up with dirt to decouple the constant heat demand of an industrial process from the um, variable input of the wind and solar. And that's a great option. Another option is to just install resistance heaters alongside gas boilers. So don't replace the gas boiler fully or at all, but run it in a hybrid mode where when energy prices are cheap, electricity prices are cheap, you switch off of gas to electricity. And when electricity prices are higher than the gas cost, you go back to gas. And, and that makes it look like a very flexible demand sink. That was a technology we put in the model for the Net Zero America study. And we saw like terawatts of that load oh, really? in, in the final net zero system, right? Or, you know, so the system wants that? Wants that cheap renewable electricity if it can use it, right? So if you can find a way to meet your constant energy demand for industrial heat while tapping into this cheapest source of energy period whenever it's available, that's a really valuable thing to do. Yeah. I think that one's going to um, be huge in like a decade. Yeah, I think so. I think the industrial heating is the biggest one that people largely are sleeping on, although not you and I, of course. Um, and then the other one that's getting most of the attention right now, I should say, is, is hydrogen production from electrolysis. Right. Yeah. Where, again, today, electrolyzers are pretty expensive, so you probably want to run them at least 70% of the time, but that's still very flexible. I mean, 30% of the hours is a lot of hours you can shut down. Yeah. And as the cost of electrolyzers fall, which we expect they will, uh, just like solar and batteries did you know, probably by 50% over the next, you know, six years or so, then you can afford to run them at 30 or 50% utilization rate. And then they're a really good flexible consumer. Now, I want to add that both of these, any of these demand sinks, what we found in our paper, they don't really help the broader grid operate. Hmm. What they do is allow you to just tap into that weather dependent, but very low cost, clean electricity and make greater economic use of it and displace fossil energy consumption elsewhere in the energy system. But it's sort of additive to all the demands that we already are going to have in the grid and the flexibility that we need to handle those demands. So we added a whole bunch of demand sinks in our modeling. And what we found is that it didn't really reduce the amount of firm generating capacity or battery capacity that you wanted on the system, but it uh, also didn't increase it much. It just sits there and soaks up that good, cheap, renewable energy when it's there. But allows you to use more wind and solar. Much more. Yeah, much more. Okay. So we've covered seconds and we've covered minutes and hours. And it sounds like on the minutes to hours thing, combining batteries and then all these demand, you know, as you say, these various uh, sources of shiftable demand. Do you think that the sort of ramping problem is solvable to solved, let's say. It's, it's low, also low on your list of worries. I think we have solved that problem in, in the sense that we know the technologies, they are not sci-fi. Right. They can be deployed at scale now. They are not deployed at scale yet at the scale we would need. So in the next you know, 10 years or five years, we are still going to have to rely on those gas turbines and things like that to do a good chunk of this. 
But over time, as we build more you know, batteries, as we wire up more flexible loads and give them the incentive to participate in this demand shifting, as we um, you know, get more uh, interruptible consumers signed up, we'll be able to do um, more of this without relying on so much uh, gas you know, backup capacity. And, and that's a good thing from a decarbonization perspective. So then we get up to hours to days, variability in terms of diurnal cycles, you know, the sun going down every night in the sort of daily storage needs. What are our options there? Yeah, so here we, uh, we probably, again, we rely right now on, on fossil generators, right, ramping up and down. <laughs> yeah. um, we can rely to some degree on lithium ion batteries. They are most economic to operate for just the highest price periods for that sort of peak in the evening ramp or maybe twice if there's a double peaking system in the morning too. And it's not a function of like physically they could, you could slow the discharge rate and run a lithium ion battery for 24 hours of discharge. You just have to discharge at a much slower overall rate than you could. Mm -hmm. And so economically, batteries and given their cost today are really best suited to somewhere between like two and six hours of Duration. Yeah, although that number has been edging upward, I yes. feel like, for as long as I've been paying attention. Right, because what, the reason I'm emphasizing that technically they can do longer is that what limits that is not the technology uh, per se, it's the economics of right. the battery. I mean, you could theoretically just stack batteries to the heavens and, right. and solve all of this if you had infinite money. If you've got 10 four-hour batteries, you've got a 40-hour battery. Or if you have one four-hour battery that you discharge at one-tenth of its rated capacity, you have a 40-hour battery, right? So that's not rocket science. The problem is you need to make enough money every time you charge and discharge to cover your overall fixed cost right. of a battery, right? So batteries make money off of kind of capacity contracts and flexibility services. So they're sort of paying for their standby ability, but also from buying low and selling high, right? This sort of buy-sell spread. Right. And the problem with any arbitrage play is that the more you buy low, the higher the low price gets. And the more you sell high, the lower the high price gets. And you're not the only one playing this game. Everybody else is arbitraging too. Exactly. And so we see this happen is that basically the price spreads start to collapse as you build more of these flexible demands and more of these batteries all kind of playing on the same price signals. And so that creates a race between the declining cost of these technologies and their declining value as you do more and more with them. And you know, as long as the costs keep falling or we develop cheaper, lower cost per kilowatt hour of storage capacity batteries or storage technologies, then batteries can stretch to play a longer and longer duration role. And so just to put some numbers on that right now, like lithium ion battery systems are probably $250 to $350 per kilowatt hour of capacity installed. If they fell to $100-ish, isn't that DOE's um, stretch goal? Yeah, so the pack costs are already falling below $100, so the the actual, mm. you know, battery pack itself, but you have to install it and yeah, give, you yeah. know, give it cooling and power control electronics and and wire it up to the grid and everything. And so the labor and the balance of system costs, just like for solar modules, you know, which are only like a third of the cost of a solar system now at scale, the pack cost is a piece of it. And so we would need to get the pack costs down a lot more if you want to hit the $100 per kilowatt hour total system cost level, like you'd still need to, you know, probably a stretch for lithium ion to hit that target, but maybe lithium ion phosphate batteries are looking like a better option to do that. Sodium sulfur batteries or sodium ion batteries, sorry, are being introduced now as a cheap, 
low range option for EVs? Well, EV batteries need to charge and discharge very quickly, and they need to have a high enough energy density to give you a lot of range in a small package for not very much weight. None of those apply to a grid battery, Yeah, right? Grid battery can charge and discharge over hours, not minutes. And the energy density doesn't matter. The gravimetric density, the weight part doesn't matter at all. The um, volumetric density only really has a small impact on the amount of space you need to put them. Uh, which can impact the installation costs and you know, cost of the land. So here you get into this weird, because we're going to discuss later long duration energy storage, where we're talking yep. about days and weeks. So here you're getting into this weird sort of liminal space between... Yeah, diurnal storage. Lithium ion batteries, which gets you up to whatever, six, maybe eight hours. Yeah, maybe 16, right? That's this sort of diurnal scale is what it seems like is necessary to manage the sort most of the day-to-day -day variability of demand and solar and wind, which are, you know, they have pretty pronounced daily cycles because the right. sun goes up and down every day. <laughs> so that's where you get into uh, flow batteries and things like this, which are sort of like longer than short term, but shorter than long term. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So iron flow. Or, I don't know how much of that space is going to be left. Like I, my, my sort of instinct is that that space is going to get eaten from below by lithium ion and eaten from above by long duration and there's not going to be much of it left but what do you what do you think yeah i mean it depends it's sort of a race to market i think and which technologies kind of get to scale and get on that cost curve first because there's a lot of path dependency here right if you yeah. can get to market and scale up and start driving down your costs before another startup can yes you may be able to edge them out of the market um and this is something that I, you know any of these startup battery companies need to keep in mind because lithium ion and sodium ion and all of the automotive battery technologies are coming like a freight train for your market yes. too if yes. you're in this diurnal space because you know there's going to be huge price pressures and competitive pressures from the auto sector to get a better cheaper you know lighter weight battery yeah, this is such a key point. I want to underline this. Like you have uh, lithium ion batteries competing in this daily space with other like flow batteries and things like that. But flow batteries are getting all their money and development and drive from this space. But lithium ion batteries have the much, 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 much larger EV market behind them. Yes, it's probably two orders of magnitude bigger. Yeah, so it's, it's an unfair advantage. It is. And I think it's really important to realize that if you're an investor or an entrepreneur in this space, you know, it, you should expect lithium ion to just keep getting better or sodium ion or other s substitutes from the automotive sector. And that will help stretch them from four hours to six to 10. It's a moving target. You know, and being economic in that space. And so, yeah, I do think you're going to see a shrinking market unless you're like a factor of two or more better than uh, lithium and ion is today. And you're going to get to market soon because lithium-ion will be half the cost eventually. <laughs> yeah. You are going to be in trouble. And so that that you know, there are plenty of solutions here. There are lots of chemistries in the lab. <laughs> you know, you read the MIT press releases or whatever. There are lots of interesting chemistries competing for this space. But as you say, like they're so far behind that they would have to be such a like order of magnitude higher performance to to get a foothold. Some of them say they can, and I think probably yeah. can. And so there, we'll probably get a you know a half dozen of new you know diurnal ten to twenty four hour kind of duration batteries, which are sometimes called long duration, which is why I think it's useful to, to separate this diurnal timescale from the sort of multi day or seasonal 
uh, role, which is a whole different one, which requires an even cheaper battery or cheaper storage medium. Um, but yeah, there again, there are solutions coming here. Um, some of those flexible demands can even shift around on the order of days. Think about EV demand again. Yeah. Right. If we had ubiquitous charging at work, or you know, or on the streets, right, that you could drive and, and plug into a small, you know, a lo- low level charger, pretty much anywhere. Then in solar dominated markets, which is probably going to be most of the world soon, you know, it makes the most sense to charge your car during the daytime and not at night. Right now, because most people charge at home, the easiest thing to do is to just avoid that peak uh, afternoon, evening, you know, consumption and charge in the middle of the night, which is generally cheaper. But uh, you could also charge during the daytime if you um, can plug in during the day. And if we shifted all of our EV consumption around, it could very well provide this sort of diurnal capability also. Because again, you have multiple days worth of charge usually in your battery and you can shift, you know, large fleets of EVs, you know, fractionally, right, to produce a lot of storage capacity in aggregate. Um, And so I I do think there's a lot coming in this space. Right. You think diurnal is, again, solvable with technologies that are either here or on the near horizon? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, maybe a little bit behind some of the shorter timescales that we're talking about, because, you know, we are talking about technologies today that are in, you know, series B or C venture capital rounds and still need to get, you know, to market and produce at scale. But most of those are coming in the next two to three years, right? They're going to be producing at commercial scale soon. And we'll see what costs they hit and whether they can scale to, you know, gigawatt hours per year. But there's a lot of innovation, a lot of investment and a lot of potential on both the battery or storage and demand side to fill that role. And again, in the meantime, we've got gas turbines. <laughs> and so it's important to remember in all of this, like there's no reason to wait for these technologies to come forward. Yes. We're just going to keep building more wind and solar, maintaining our gas, you know, as we add these additional resources to augment them. And if all else fails, right, and we don't get there with, you know, with these diurnal technologies, what it does is it pr- just provides an economic limit on the amount of wind and solar that we can add because we'll start curtailing wind and solar more than we would ideally. And that just reduces the amount of energy that those wind and solar farms can sell at a value. And that also creates a race between declining wind and solar costs and curtailment or declining value of wind and solar. It's something I've talked about a lot in the past. Again, there's, you know, if wind and solar just keep getting cheaper, they can keep winning that race. But if they stall out of the way wind has appeared to over the last couple of years, and we'll see if it gets back on track, um, then that the, the limitation in diurnal flexibility options will present an economic limit on the amount of wind and solar we can add. If solar just keeps getting cheaper, like say solar drops- Which will then provide an enormous financial incentive for people to come forward with these solutions. To do this, exactly. Yeah. So think about if, if, if solar just got half the cost it is today, which is still achievable, right? That solar PV could- decline by another 40 or 50% over the next, you know, five to 10 years. If that happens, then you can afford to waste half of your solar production (laughs) that you, you know, would otherwise need to sell today, right? Because you just knocked the cost in half, Um, probably more than that, because it's the prices are not evenly distributed. And then, yeah, now you've created this huge amount of free energy during the middle of the day that somebody can come and arbitrage with a daily storage or demand flexibility option. So I think we're on a pretty inexorable path to solving that problem as well, even though it's not technically solved today. This seems like a good place to bring in transmission, Mm. which is another in the basket of solutions to variability. I think on virtually all these 
time scales really. I mean, transmission helps uh, uh, in all these ways, but I think it, in the diurnal yeah. time scale is going to be the most sort of notable contribution, which is just if you, the broader of a geography you connect up, the more smooth your overall profile is. That's right. Yeah, we haven't talked about the geographic nature of this, but again, you know what this is all driven by is the weather. Right. That's what drives demand, wind, solar, you know, variability, and um, over longer timescales, you tend to have to go over broader geographies to decorrelate the output. Right. So if you're just talking about those seconds, you know, to minutes, right, the clouds and the variability of an individual wind farm, right, you know, you can go not very far away and get a solar farm or a wind farm that is not in the same cloud or not dealing with the same wind gust as it goes across the plains. And you can balance those short term variabilities out over relatively small geographic areas. When it comes to hours to days timescales, you kind of need continent scale, you know, not not the entire U.S. continent, but, you know, like at least big chunks of it would be nice uh, scale interconnection. And, you know, we do have grids that span continents. So that's not an impossible thing. In particular, if you go east to west, you see the timing of that peak demand shift as the sun sets right across the country. And so you can spread the solar and demand out in the evening hours. You can't get rid of the nighttime entirely unless you have a grid that spans the whole world. Um, <laughs> but across the expanse of the United States or Europe or, or other, you know, China, other big east to west countries, uh, you can do a lot there. And wind fronts tend to be driven by these big um, synoptic scale weather patterns that span, you know, big areas. You'll see them talked about in the news. And we've got a high pressure front off of the Atlantic that's you know, affecting the Northeast today, right? And those affect big regions, but not the whole country. So if you can, you know, connect from Pennsylvania to Oklahoma, right, it maybe has very different weather patterns going on. And you can deal with some of these even multi-day kind of fronts uh, potentially as well. Okay. So we've got second to second, more or less covered. We've got minutes to hours covered, coverable, easily forecasted to be coverable. Then we've got hours to days, which is, as you say, the site of enormous activity <laughs> right now. A lot of people uh, uh, working on those things and, and solutions either in hand or anticipatable relatively soon in the next decade. Then we get up to weeks and seasons. And I guess the first thing I'd ask is, is there a meaningful difference here technologically in terms of what we need between weeks and seasons? Are, are those going to be distinct categories? Well, I don't, yeah, I don't know that there's a huge difference between weeks and seasons. I think once you're cheap enough to do weeks, you, you probably, <laughs> so what we tend to see is that it's not that you're doing like seasonal discharge, like you're not discharging for months at a time, right? but what you might do is charge very slowly for weeks at a time in the spring or the fall and the sort of shoulder seasons, and then step in for five or seven or 20 days in the peak demand, you know, low wind and solar period in the winter or the summer. And, um, you know, during those Dunkelflauta or whatever. <laughs> right. Once we're beyond days, we're just talking basically about long-term solutions. And here, as I understand it, this is the most difficult, least answered, least settled form of variability that we're dealing with here, which is just what is that resource that's not wind and solar that when wind and solar are unusually low for weeks or seasons at a time can step in for weeks 
and seasons at a time without generating carbon. So that's a, a, a head scratcher of a category. It is. And this is what I call the, you know, we published a paper, Nestor Sepulveda and I back in 2018 on firm low carbon resources, you know, looking at this need. Yes. We followed that up with a, with a later paper um, in 2020 on long duration energy storage. Um, you know, how cheap does batteries, you know, dual or other technologies need to be to actually fill that role with a storage technology? The answer is really, really cheap, like two orders of magnitude cheaper than a lithium ion battery. Right. So lithium ion batteries are not, are not, no, they're not going to do this cheap enough to do this. So what, what is, no, gonna, but what can? Yeah. So the options on the generation side, and we can come back to the storage front in a minute are, you know, the, again, the default in all of these conversations is we just keep using fossil fuels for less and less and less and less of this job, right? right? So if, again, we can't develop any other technology, all we can do is have some combustion turbines and diesel generators sitting around for that week. Yeah, right. That is not the end of the world from a CO2 perspective, right? It would be challenging to maintain the gas and fuel delivery infrastructure for that. And It'll get more and more expensive to do than today, right? So it won't be as cheap as today's gas turbines. But, you know, we run our models and they're pretty damn price insensitive to that <laughs> cost, um, especially on the variable side, because you don't, you're not going to burn a lot of fuel in those power plants, right? You're going to, they're going to sit there and provide a lot of power when you need them. But because you only run them for a week or five days or, you know, 20 days, they don't burn very much fuel right. over the course of a year. That means that even if the fuel is really expensive, like it's all synthetic methane or hydrogen that right, you produce, right. you know, from renewables in another period of the year, or you produce from, you know, biomass gasification or whatever, you know, those could cost several times as much as current natural gas. And that still would be fine from a total economics perspective because you don't use very much of it. So we could learn to live at peace with some marginal yeah. natural gas plants sitting around waiting on these periods. Yeah. And, and from, you know, again, like the things that we don't like about fossil fuels, whether it's gas or coal or oil, is all related to how much of it we burn, not how much capacity we have sitting around right. to, to burn yes. it. Right. Such so a it's, crucial point. you know, so all the pollution, all the fracking, all the fuel production, all the transportation, all the methane emissions from the fuel cycle, like all that scales with how much volume we use, not the peak power output. And so it isn't the end of the world, you know, if we have, you know, we don't get to 100% carbon-free grid, we get to a 98% carbon-free grid, and we run some gas turbines. The thing that I'm, we're actually researching right now, and I think is important to consider in that context, call that the fallback plan, right? The, we don't get any new innovation, and we have to do this plan, which is unlikely. Then the thing I'm exploring with my group now is how much fuel storage or firm pipeline capacity or whatever do you need to make sure that you actually have the fuel around when you really need it? Yeah. Because if you don't, then all that standby capacity is worthless. It's a lot of infrastructure to maintain for a few power plants. For backup use. And so, and so as I said, it's very insensitive to variable cost of the fuel, but it may be much more sensitive to the capital cost of the fuel, of the, of the equipment you need to secure the fuel supply. And because you're not using it very often, so you don't get to amortize that cost over a lot of hours. And so it may be that that becomes more expensive than we think if we start to account for all those additional things, like the need to have on-site fuel storage or, or something. Yeah, like maintaining the natural gas distribution system is this weird sort of like yes or no, on or off question. And if it's on, then yeah. that's a shitload of money. And if it's off, you're saving a bunch. It's not really something you can half do. Yeah, right now, power plants, gas plants, 
basically are non-firm consumers. So they just use the gas capacity on the pipelines when it's there. Mm-hmm. And when it's not, they don't, you know, generally. Um, but if you're going to be the, the last resort firm resource, you better make sure your fuel supply is secured. Otherwise, you're useless and people will freeze to death and that's not okay. <laughs> so um, that's, you know, one option is we just figure out how to secure, you know, gas turbines running on either methane or synthetic methane or biogas or hydrogen or something or like that. Or capturing and burying their CO2 or... Or um, let's mention the alum cycle real quick. Yeah, I should, well, so I would say that's not a great option for this very intermittent capacity role because that capital equipment is n- to capture CO2 and to store it is not going to be used at such a low utilization rate. So then we go into the next category uh, beyond these sort of backup com- combustion turbines or fuel cells or something. And that's where you have uh, gas with carbon capture or maybe coal, but probably not, and advanced nuclear and advanced geothermal. Even a gas plant with carbon capture is sort of in the middle. It's got fuel costs, so it's non-zero variable costs, but ha- and has some capital costs. So it, you want to run it, you know, maybe forty to seventy percent of the hours of the year. And so it will do more than just fill in the standby capacity. If you build that, it'll also supply some of our carbon-free generation, and we'll need less wind and solar because of that. But that is an option. And then the final one, geothermal and nuclear, both fission and potentially fusion, are you know majorly capital intensive, you know upfront cost, but very low if any fuel cost. And so if they are in the mix, we want to run them most of the time, not all the right. time, right? They don't need to run base load. The, the term is you know like there is no base load that we need to meet anymore in a system with lots of variable renewables. What we need is something that can complement the variable renewables. So even geothermal or nuclear, it would make sense to couple with a storage option. So we've looked at coupling nuclear fission with thermal storage, the way um, some of the new designs are going to do. Yeah. Uh, we looked at geothermal plants that uh, both closed loop and enhanced geothermal can shift their production on daily or even weekly or seasonal timescales. So they just concentrate all their output in the best periods and store it up for, for in the other periods. So they will operate flexibly. I call them flexible base technologies, but they're going to be operating at you know 70 to 90% utilization rates, not standby. And and all those are again like those are with the exception of fusion right which still has some very serious you know engineering questions to work out like we know we can build nuclear power plants we know we can build geothermal we know we can frack wells and we're you know starting to do the first hydrofracking for geothermal with um, enhanced geothermal technologies being built like right now you know these are technologies that are right over the horizon and are are well capitalized now by in startups and by public sector support and are going to be built in, you know, first commercial scale projects over the next, you know, two to five years. And so we'll see which of those start to look really viable. And and over the, by the end of the decade, I think we'll have this part of the toolkit worked out as well. And we'll really have an understanding of which ones of these are ready to scale and and which ones aren't. So the idea here is if you, if you hit the dunkel flout, (laughs) if you hit the period of low wind and solar, you just ramp up your nuclear and your geothermal yep, and your carbon captured natural gas plants to compensate. Yep. Or you have very, very low cost energy storage, like what Form Energy is working on um, with a very cheap um, iron air battery, or um, you could do very large compressed air in big salt caverns that if they're big enough, get really, really cheap, or you could store hydrogen underground. These are long duration energy storage. All of these are potentially, yeah, sort of $1 to $10 per kilowatt hour type range of, of cost of storage capacity, marginal storage capacity. And if that's the case, then they we found that they could 
displace much, if not all, of the, um, the that firm generation role and act as basically a firm storage option for those. Interesting. So if we successfully develop and commercialize a few of these long-duration technologies, we are reducing our need for clean firm, reducing our need for yeah. nuclear and geothermal. What we found is it's pretty difficult to fully eliminate it, um, but you could do a lot more with uh, long-duration storage and renewables and less need less firm. Interesting. Give us a sense of, I think a lot of people are curious about this, is like, where are we on those long-duration energy storage technologies? I mean, technologically, they don't seem that mysterious, but they're not, none of them, as far as I know, are commercially used yet, except for pumped hydro. Yeah, and pumped hydro is way too expensive for this role. It's a diurnal mm. technology, too, that um, is really sized for and, and has the cost for you know daily or multi-hour kind of applications. So we don't have long-duration energy storage at a commercial scale no, we, yet, really. Partly because we haven't had to. We have chemical fuels. We don't need it. We have diesel and coal right, right. and natural gas, and that's, that's our storage, right? So what we're trying to figure out is a way to get by without those fuels, and, and so... One option is, you know, really cheap electrochemical storage or alternative chemical storage like hydrogen or synthetic, you know, natural gas stored in salt caverns or, you know, the way we store gas seasonally today. Those are all doable. Um, but yeah, they're, I mean, I basically say they're in the same place as all of the clean firm generation options, which is mm. that there are multiple startup companies that have clear line of sight and, you know, are capitalized and are scaling and are trying to work it out. And you know, we'll know in the next three to five years which of those are real and which of those can't get, the, you know, the, off the ground. Um, and so, again, like if, when I published our paper, you know, when Esther and I published our paper initially, the, it was very speculative, right, which of these could take off. Most of the nuclear designs existed on paper. The alum cycle existed on paper. You know, um, we were just talking notionally about hydrogen with no policy support whatsoever, right? And and now you have strong public policy support and well-capitalized companies in all of these categories moving forward. And so I think we're, again, in good position to solve this problem. It's not an unsolvable challenge. Let's real quick just spell out what we mean by alum cycle uh, natural gas in case for the non super nerds out there who are not following uh, following this. I wrote a, I wrote a peeps and box about it uh, three or four years ago, but I haven't heard a lot about it lately. But spell out what that is. So this is a technology um, that is commercialized by a company called NetPower. Recently went um, public uh, via SPAC, and I should disclose that I served as a consultant to the the SPAC company uh, as they were exploring uh, that acquisition. And so it's now a publicly traded uh, company that is building their first commercial project um, in the Permian uh, Basin, uh, West Texas. Um, they're building another one. They got a couple other uh, others planned. Um, and they have operated a pilot scale facility outside of Laporte, Texas, to try to prove out the design. But what it does is it basically burns natural gas in a pure oxygen environment. So it uses an air separating unit to get oxygen out of the atmosphere. And then when you burn gas with only oxygen instead of the air, you don't get any air pollutants. So you don't get, I mean, it already burns with very little, no particulates, but um, all of the nitrous oxides, the NOx emissions that mm -hmm. we get from gas power plants, the nitrogen comes from the air. It comes from partial combustion and high temperature combustion that dissociate nitrogen out of the air and combine it with oxygen and produce NOx. And so if you burn it in a pure oxygen environment, there's no nitrogen available to become NOx. And so it produces power with no air pollution and it produces a pure CO2 stream 
from that combustion that can be easily captured at you know 99.9% capture rate and then sequestered or stored. And so it has the potential to be a you know very low air pollution, basically no air pollution and nearly 100% capture gas power plant. Really cool, really cool machine. Yeah, I should say it doesn't eliminate the upstream, you know, impacts of gas supply chains, but everything from the power plant it can clean up. And so that's a huge, you know, uh, difference from our current gas plants. It's also different from a post-combustion capture system, which bolts on to a conventional gas plant. Those have a harder time capturing 100% of the emissions. It takes a lot more energy to do that. And they all add a lot of cost and um, reduce the efficiency of the the process. The, the alum cycle itself, it has some other complicated systems to it. It's, it uses supercritical CO2 to run the turbines instead of water, and it keeps it at a constant phase. Long and short of it is it's much more efficient and compact than a combined cycle plant too. And so if this can be made to work, and again, you have to show that it can work on a sustained basis at commercial scale, then it's a potentially much more affordable option and can capture much higher emissions levels with zero air pollution um, relative to a gas plant with, you know, conventional gas combined cycle plant with carbon capture. As has come up several times already in our discussion, there are several contexts in which it would be very handy to have a couple of sort of low utilization natural gas plants hanging around. So if you could build those in such a way that they are air pollutant free and easily capturable CO2, it's a big help. Yeah. And if you can cite them in ways that where you uh, can source from gas fields that have very low methane leakage and don't have to transport across big pipelines and don't use the distribution network. Like, you know, there's a lot of upstream impacts to consider. But uh, yeah, you could do it in a not not zero impact, but much, much more uh, benign, you know, system than our current gas plants. And do you think of e-fuels? So, you know, for listeners, you can strip hydrogen out of the air with electrolysis and then combine hydrogen with hydrocarbons that you've captured elsewhere to create basically carbon neutral fuels. This is how we're going to solve aviation fuels, probably how we're going to solve shipping some form of methanol. There's there's a, there's a variety of these e-fuels yep. available and possible. Do you think of those conceptually as long-term energy storage? Yeah. I mean, you can think of them either as long-duration storage or as... Um firm generation. I mean, I think they're kind of a mix of the two because mm. you're probably going to get some of their initial energy inputs from electricity, but maybe not all of them. So you can think of it in the extreme manner. We don't use any electrolysis. We get all of these from biomass and from methane reforming with carbon capture or other non-electrolytic sources. And then it just looks to the electricity sector like a fuel because it doesn't consume electricity to produce. It just gives you electricity. Right. On the other extreme, it's a full round trip, you know, electrochemical process. You use electricity to produce the fuel, you store the fuel, you burn it back into electricity. What's interesting is that they sit in between and that they're part of a much larger fuel system that is predominantly used outside of the electricity sector and has input options besides electricity. Mm. And I think that's also a big advantage because just like lithium-ion batteries are going to kind of coast on the much larger you know, EV market for batteries, it means there's more things you can do with these long-duration storage options. You, know, you can power ships and you can power industrial processes and you can use them as chemical feedstocks as opposed to an electrochemical battery that can only do electrical storage. And so I think those are pretty viable options to kind of eventually play the role of a long duration firm generation slash storage option. 
And the long duration electrochemical battery makers need to keep an eye on that market too, because it could be coming for the other side of your market. They do know this. I mean, I've talked to several of them that they're keeping an eye on hydrogen and e-fuels and other things. But that's the other you know, uh, route is that we just burn these fuels occasionally. But, but again, that comes back to that fuel supply assurance question that I raised before, which is the piece we're researching now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you set up an entire infrastructure to create fuels that are only used marginally or used? Well, see, this is where I think those ones have an advantage in the sense that um, you would use them in other sectors, right? You would use these fuels to produce jet fuel or to produce, you know, uh, shipping fuel or as a feedstock for petrochemicals or, or others. And so you could sort of tap into that larger, more established and more constantly used fuel system the way that power plants today tap into the natural gas system. Um, it would be smaller probably than today's gas distribution system, but it could be similar in that it's sort of a multi-use fuel network and, and reaches economies of scope and scale because of that. So it is an, an option, one that we're, you know, we see in our kind of multi-sector modeling that we do. And and I think, um, you know, whether you see that as a generation option or as a storage option or some hybrid in between, it, it certainly fits the role of a firm resource and and can be our potential backup kind of source. Stepping back here, we've walked through the time cycles of intermittency from seconds all the way up to seasons. And basically what you're saying is that in all those cases, there are options either available or in development. It's probably safer to say that the seconds side of thing is more solved. There are more options. We're more ready for that. And when you get up to the seasons level of intermittency, we're a little bit more out in the future. We're a little bit more theoretical. There's a lot of stuff in the lab. There's a lot of competition that needs to be had, but there are options there as well. So one thing you could take from this is just, oh, variability is nothing to worry about. And yet people see California having problems. People see high renewable energy penetration systems starting to run into these problems. So how do we square those two stories in our head? This idea that we know how to do it, yet even at low, relatively low penetration, we're starting to run into tensions and, and problems. Okay, Dave, do you ever encounter challenges in your day-to-day -day life? <laughs> You have writer's block or you I'm a podcaster. Uh, it's all easy need to figure out what to make for dinner for your kids. <laughs> do you just throw up your hands and cover your head and go back to bed? Of course not. Right. You wouldn't get through your life if you did that. Also, some of those challenges, you don't, you know, you don't solve them the first time you sit down to do it. Right. But these are challenges, not barriers or impenetrable walls that we can't pass. Right. These are not rules of nature or fundamental limits. They are challenges. They have costs to overcome them. Those costs change as we apply innovation and ingenuity to solve them in new, you know, creative ways and as technologies improve. And they take time to solve because, you know, this is a big system and we're trying to, you know, rebuild it as we use it. And some experimentation and, and, and failure yep. along the way. So, you know, I think we just have to keep in mind, like, you can take these challenges very seriously and we should and the industry does. And you can see them as solvable. And we should because they are and not despair. 
because uh, we can overcome them. <laughs> so I think it's you have to hold all those things in mind. And that's not an unusual or unique thing. Like that's how we get through our lives, <laughs> right? Is we, we encounter challenges, we find solutions, we implement them, we iterate, we try again, you know, and we don't generally give up uh, right away. Um, <laughs> at least you don't get very far if you do. Or, or give up before we even really are trying, uh, yeah. before we've even tried it's, it's, it oh, at can't all. can't possibly do it. And so that's where we are, right? We have a bunch of solutions. We've talked about them here. They are not all at scale ready to use predominantly today. We cannot stop using natural gas power plants tomorrow. In fact, I would counsel we don't shut really any down over the next decade or longer because we probably need them as we rapidly replace coal. You can idle them, not shut them down, right? There's a distinction there. What we care about is how much fuel they burn, not right, how right, much power right. capacity they have. And so we need to keep that front and center. So I, I think it's interesting is that over the last few years, I think a really clear roadmap has emerged for decarbonization of the power sector. And that roadmap looks like this. It says, deploy wind and solar and batteries and demand flexibility as quickly as we can. Right? We know these things can work. They're effective. They need to scale up and play a bigger and bigger role in our energy system as fuel saving and balancing resources. The second thing we have to do is use those resources to just shut down our coal-fired power plants as quickly as is practical. Yes, They're the highest source of air pollution and carbon emissions and the cheapest thing to replace in the grid. So best bang for the buck is shut those plants down as quickly as we can. And any net zero pathway we run, they're offline by 2030, basically, all the coal plants in the U.S. Third, while we do that, we have to keep our existing natural gas and nuclear power plants running because they provide firm generation today. And we don't have enough of that multi-day diurnal firm you know, generation uh, ready at scale um, right now. And so you want to keep existing nuclear as a foundation to make more rapid progress on. And you need to keep the gas power capacity even as we use less and less gas burned in the, in the generators. And in some places in the country where we're really rapidly retiring coal, we may even need to add more gas capacity. But we should do so recognizing the role that those gas plants are going to play in the longer term as this sort of backup kind of resource. And then the final thing, of course, is we have to build a lot bigger grid, right? The fourth yes. thing. Um, you know, we can't tap renewables. We can't meet growing demand for electricity from you know, EVs and heat pumps and hydrogen production without a bigger grid. And so we have to do that at the same time. And, and all those things together, those four things... We've seen in study after study can get us an 80 to 90% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector, even as we expand electricity supply and keep costs pretty much comparable to what they are today, even lower after you account for subsidies from the Inflation Reduction Act. And of course, all this innovation going on in all these areas is going to produce all kinds of things we can't anticipate. And that lets us go the rest of the way. So that's the, you know, the next decade is doing those four things and cutting emissions 80 to 90%. And then simultaneously, because yes, we can walk and chew gum. We're smart, big, you know, people with lots of, you know, big boys and girls with, <laughs> with the ability to do two things at once. We are going to be deploying and innovating and scaling the rest of the toolkit that we need, the synthetic inertia, the firm low carbon generation, the multi-use fuels, the demand sink technologies, the, um, the long duration, low cost energy storage. All of that will be commercially ready you know, not every technology out there, but something in each of those categories will be commercially viable in the early 2030s. And then we put the pedal to the metal, deploying those things to go the rest of the way to close the distance to 100% or 99% carbon free grid. That's how we get the job done. Beautiful. A substantial social and political <laughs> 
challenge, just for sure. To put it mildly, but technologically, the road ahead is more or less clear. Yep. And it didn't say like, you know, we have all the technologies we need. I've been hearing that for, you know, 25 years. We have all the technologies we need to make rapid progress. And that should be all we need to start making rapid progress. And if we walk and chew gum at the same time, if we're clear eyed about the challenges ahead of us, we don't see them as impenetrable barriers, but rather as innovation challenges to overcome. And we invest the resources and scale the technologies to do so proactively, which is what we are doing now as a private and public sector, then we're going to get there. We're going to solve these problems. Beautiful, beautiful, Jesse. All right. Uh, all right. Variability check done. <laughs> Marking that off my list. Moving on to the next thing. I, I assume once this podcast circulates, I will no longer be running into people on the internet who are informing me that the sun goes down at night. I look forward to that day on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thanks. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Volts podcast. It is ad-free, powered entirely by listeners like you. If you value conversations like this, please consider becoming a paid Volts subscriber at volts.wtf. Yes, that's volts.wtf, so that I can continue doing this work. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.